Welcome to Common Thread. We hope you find these lessons helpful, but also we'd like to get to know you. If you go to our website slash newcomer, we'll send you an email, some things to read about the community, and an invitation to a personal chat. If you're here in Raleigh, maybe face-to-face. If not, on Zoom. We hope you will. CommonThreadChurch.org slash newcomer. Okay, here's the lesson. Under the water filter, I'm getting it, and then I'm putting all together, then I push brew. Now, there are more than 300 million Americans, and I bet that happens at least 100 million times every day. <laughs> but here's what made it a mindfulness practice for me. I started seeing how fast my box of 100 filters was drawing down. I started watching how quickly they were going. I would open a box, and damn, I already need another one. What happened? And it became, every time I would take one out, just a daily reminder of how fast life goes. Pull out another filter, and another day has gone. So I thought to myself, well, here I am doing this noticing every morning. Here I am doing what's already a spiritual practice, noticing life sailing by. Why not also make my daily ritual a contemplative practice? Why not integrate just a very small version of what we call the examine of consciousness? So while I fill the carafe and while I put in the filter and while I fill in the coffee and while I pour the water, also do a very short examine like, how did I live yesterday? in the coffee, putting in the coffee. What did I do yesterday? Putting in the water, pouring it. Does it matter what I did? And most days don't have any shattering insights. Sometimes there's an episode just waiting for me to ask the question. It's ready for my question. And when I ask the question, there it is. And it's ready to be talked about, ready to be thought about. But other days, because I have done the practice while I was making the coffee, When I head upstairs, my mind is in a posture of watchfulness. My mind is in a posture of prayerfulness. It's a prayer for light. It's a prayer for watchfulness. It's this prayer. It's teach me to number my days. I don't get a lot of them, so teach me to number them well, because they go fast. So, teach me to love well. Teach me to learn well. Teach me to grow. Teach me to not resist and not get attached to my inner narratives that are faulty. So, it's an important concept, this noticing. It's why we talk about mindfulness. It's why we talk about the contemplative practices. But let's take that concept of noticing. And today, let's add a little bit of texture to it. Let's talk a little bit of how it happens, texture, Now, if you've been part of Common Thread for very long at all, you will have heard a few lessons about pain. Maybe you've heard a pithy little saying that I picked up along the way. The point of pain is not to get out of pain. The point of pain is to get out of pain what we need to get out of pain. Well, I picked that up a long time ago, and it stuck because I started to realize even early in my life that pain is an essential amino acid for growing spiritual bodies. (laughs) It is an important part of how we uh, move forward in our lives. Pain is just in the mix. It's not going to be going away, but it turns out it's also an essential building block for spiritual lives. And given that so much of our human pain is driven by our thoughts, and it's usually thoughts that are not completely untrue, but they're often not true enough, 
given that most of our pain is driven by our own interior judgments and beliefs and inner commentaries that are not untrue, they're just not true enough, well, the only way to not have the pain that they cause us is to not have the thoughts in the first place. And that's kind of a non-starter because we do have those thoughts in the first place. So pain kind of just is. And it's going to be for the foreseeable future. But pain need not be a bad thing in our lives. It just is a painful thing. So if we allow pain to work in us, it can be that essential amino acid for growing bodies. It can be healthy for us. Now, maybe you're like me. Maybe you're not fond of pain. <laughs> but here's the thing. In the spiritual life, particularly when we take on the practices, when we are working the circle, those circles have this tendency to point us toward our pain. Counterintuitively, when they do that, put us toward our pain, they're actually reducing the net amount of pain that we're going to experience in our lives. Because what the practices do is they help us get out of pain what we need to get out of pain. So by going toward it, by exploring it, by digging into it, we begin to disempower it. We do that by disempowering the very drivers that are behind what causes that pain in the first place. So if we are working the circle with a group or on the app, we're doing it with one another, or if we're pulling out a coffee filter and taking a moment of examine early in the day, we are looking at the things that drive the dissonance within, the discomfort within, the pain. Oh yeah. I did get irritated at so-and-so yesterday. Oh, yeah. I wonder what was in the irritation. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay, I wonder what my fear was. I wonder what my resentment was. I wonder what was going on. Oh, yeah, I did worry about the kid again last night. I wonder what was in my worry. What was the fear that has set up shop inside of me? So a little bit of examination while we make our coffee or 10 minutes at the end of the day, we signal our willingness to let pain be our teacher, to make our pain a pathway to this prayer, teach us to number our days. May I see my faulty narratives, because they're driving a lot of my pain. May I see the bigger narratives, the ones that transcend my ego narratives. May I find my way into the bigger truths. So our lesson today, <coughs> am I doing it right, is looking at am I mid-lifing right. And in this lesson, this is the second part of it, we're drawing a parallel between a well-known human event, the midlife crisis, and this thing that we're all going through together as a nation, our post-pandemic mental health crisis. And what we saw the first week is that there's a strong correlation between the two because both are driven by the slow accumulation of unprocessed stuff. So you missed, if you missed last week, you can have a listen online. But what I basically said is in crisis, in times of emergency, we human beings have an extraordinary capacity to adapt. 
Our bodies and our brains have figured out how to go into streamlined mode and how to, without us even being aware that we're doing, shuttle aside non-urgent things to afford us the resources we need to take care of what is pressing and urgent and the emergency right in front of us. So we did that during the pandemic. We set aside a bunch of things because we had to. It's a great design component. It allows us to keep going in very difficult situations to keep, and it kept us going during the pandemic because we had to keep showing up for work even though work was sometimes at the kitchen table. And we had to keep showing up for the kids even if they were also at the kitchen table. We had to keep learning and keep learning and keep learning new ways to do new things in brand new contexts. We had to do that to get through the emergency and it sucked up a lot of bandwidth but that's what you have to do to get to the other side. But while we were doing it, we were also taking things that were also important, not urgent, but important, and shuttling them aside for later. And now is later. And now those set-aside things are insisting that we deal with them, and we are calling that insistence our nation's great mental health crisis. Now, and I said this last week as well, would I describe it that way? Have an emergency, set aside some things, go back and process it later, it just sounds so tidy. <laughs> but when we're in it, it is anything but tidy. Not tidy, not at all. Because when you're in it, it feels like, God, I'm crawling out of my skin. It feels like I am going to kill my spouse, I'm going to kill my kids. It feels like the impulse to withdraw. It feels like the impulse to depression or anxiety or malaise or extra grouchiness or less passion for living, less desire to engage. It feels decidedly untidy. And that is happening to us collectively. Thank you for the feedback I got last week. Lots of folks said, oh yeah, Doug, I you know, hadn't named it, but that is what's going on. But here's the encouraging thing to me. <clears throat> that this process is very similar, this post-pandemic mental health crisis process is very similar to midlife crisis. And the reason that's encouraging, as I said in the Thursday email, is a better term for midlife crisis could be a midlife awakening. Because those who've gone through it, if you've gone through a midlife crisis and you let the process do what the process does and you didn't get hijacked by a sports car or by hair plugs, if you just went through the process, anyone who has done that will regale anyone who will listen with stories of, ooh, this is what I learned and this is what I saw that I had not seen. Those things that we tend to put aside in our youth, they stack up. And stack up and stack up and stack up, usually until about midlife. While we are focusing on our education, while we are focusing on our family, while we are focusing on our career, while we, while we are focusing on building a social network, unbeknownst to us, usually doing those things driven by ego beliefs or driven by ego judgments or driven by ego narratives, stuff is stacking up and stacking up and stacking up. And it's important stuff but it's stuff that gets shuttled aside because we're building a life. And then in midlife, we have to deal with them. 
all of our set-aside things eventually begin to insist, deal with me now. As we heard in the story last week, deal with me now or there will be no sleep for you. Deal with me now or you're actually going to begin harming your body and feel the pain in your body. Deal with me now or I'm going to make you so uncomfortable. You're going to start screwing up the relationships that are most meaningful to you. Deal with me now. Now, I point out the correlation between our midlife crises and our great mental health crisis. Because again, those who will successfully navigate this one will say, whew, best thing for us. Nobody likes the discomfort. Nobody likes the disorientation. Nobody likes feeling the disappointment, the anxiety, even the shame, all the things that come up in both of these kinds of crises. But if we will engage the practices in our pain, work the circle, if we will examine ourselves while we make our coffee, if we will go toward the pain and explore the pain, before long, the drivers of our pain begin to break up, eventually begin to dissolve. The point of pain is not to get out of pain. The point of pain is to get out of pain what we need to get out of pain. Okay, that's the context. I told you these lessons would be about the story. Now, the story. Well, not now. First, the questions. This is, these are the questions that we'll be discussing afterwards. I want to give you time to be thinking as we're going through it about your own story. To give you some time to be thinking, so you just heard about the coffee filter ritual. You're going to hear about a very painful breakdown, both things that will help us notice the unseen drivers of our pain. So tell it about a time when you saw the unseen. And was your experience painful or was it practiced? Was it painful like a breakdown or was it practiced like a coffee filter? And what did you realize? What did you come to understand? Maybe in the moment, maybe in hindsight. All right, be thinking about your own story and the things you learned from your experience. Okay, our story. <coughs> the first story last week was about a young man, not in the midlife uh, category. This young man was in crisis because of an interior narrative about meeting expectations. Well, this week, the story is about a woman who's actually in midlife. Different stories, but same pattern. And the pattern begins with pain. Now, you've picked up by now that our inner narratives tend to skew our judgments. And when we have skewed judgments, we tend to focus on some things, often less important things, and we tend to leave other things unfocused on, often more important things. And eventually, our skewed focus hurts. Eventually, our skewed focus, pain. Well, she began, unbeknownst to me, I picked up an interior story as a child. Now, I say unbeknownst, not because I didn't know as a child that I was in pain. I knew I was in pain, but I say unbeknownst because you know how it is for kids. The world that we grow up in is just the world. It is what we know, and it is all we know. So we tend to normalize our experience as children, even when it's not normal, and mine was not. Actually a little bit sick and twisted. Now I imagine my parents had some kind of motivating framework. I imagine they may have had a reason behind what they did. Maybe they were trying to make me a good person. 
Maybe they were trying to keep me from falling prey to my more base instincts. Maybe they were trying to teach me discipline, maybe. But even if there was some sliver of noble intent, how I experienced it was anything but noble. I got the message very clearly, there is something wrong with you, something bad wrong. And that message never let up, not once, and it still hasn't. Now, I'm sure, she said, that our religion was in the mix. The notion that we were born sinful or original sin or total depravity, if you know the theological words for it. But my parents went to the extreme. Things that were really not awful about me were cited again and again as evidence to reinforce how awful I am. So I got sick, I was nine years old, and I threw up, and I threw up in a convenient place at an inconvenient, at an inconvenient place at an inconvenient time. You are an awful, awful child. I was curious, I asked hard questions. Uh, you are an awful, awful child, maybe evil. I had an appendicitis, which racked up some pretty substantial hospital bills. You are an awful, awful child. I bit my nails, yeah, go figure. Uh, and I started my period, all things again and again and again reinforced, you are an awful child. There is bad in you, and our job is to get the bad out. And I guess, she said, some part of me believed them, and the other part of me figured that they never actually did. They never actually did get the bad out. So that's what I normalized as a child, and as a preteen, and as a teenager, and over time, and over time, even though I rejected the religion, something got stuck deep inside of me, closer to worldview. And it was a worldview about how things are, but more pointedly about how I am. Without realizing that I had developed, I developed a strategy to compensate for that core belief. And my strategy was to do everything that I could to make sure that nobody ever saw how truly awful I am. So I excelled at stuff. Started off, I excelled in academics, and I chose my career carefully, and I worked very hard, and I excelled there as well. And I worked double time to show myself and to show to the world that, see, I am good. This is the good version of me. This is the not awful version of me. This is the acceptable to others version of me, because this me not good. This me, push it down, override it. So off I go doing good to become a better me and to make sure you know that I am a better me doing my best to make good decisions, doing my best to make the kind of decisions that people would approve of, career decisions, success decisions, work ethic decisions, relationship decisions, all driven by don't let them see my awful and she said, I started doing it when I was a little girl. I fell into it out of necessity. I wasn't critical of it. I didn't judge it as a strategy. I just absorbed it, and I just followed it. And because I did, had a lot of success. Because it turns out, trying desperately to be an acceptable version of myself for other people to see, I did a lot of good stuff. Got a lot of promotions. Got a lot of affirmation, accomplishments, lots of them. But what never changed was my unnamed, 
unseen, always driving me, inner sense, there's something wrong with me, something bad wrong, and I better not let people see it. Well, sure enough, if that's the interior framing story, that it's going to do what we've been saying it does. I'm going to focus on things over here, and I'm going to leave things over there unfocused on, and that shift in focus, kind of like a slow poison drip. All the things that I did not prioritize, all the things that I did not put energy toward begin to accumulate over time and to build up and build up and build up until pain. Now the pain started as a low-grade pain, kind of gentle, kind of like, come on, let's deal with this kind of gentle. <laughs> the pain of fear, everyday fear, every day, every day, every day. All fear, all the time, all anxiety, all day long. Success at work, anxiety. A loving relationship, anxiety. Getting a promotion, told that I'm doing a good job, anxiety. All anxiety, all the time. And joylessness, no joy. And hopelessness, no hope. And grinding it out all day, every day, focusing on keeping people from seeing that under my success, it's all a sham. They're going to eventually see, oh, see, she is awful. My wife giving me a back rub. I can't enjoy it. Pressure in my head. I have to say how grateful I am because if I don't, it's going to come out that I'm an ingrate. I'm not grateful enough. See, awful. Yep, that's me. Awful. Rejection surely to ensue. So all anxiety all the time, no joy, no hope. Low grade, but pain. But here's the thing about ignoring, avoiding low grade pain. If we keep not dealing with those set-aside things that need dealing with, they're just going to become more insistent. And they did. And it hit the fan. An explosion of emotion on my way to a work meeting, a place that I'm really successful. It was a simple thing I had to do. All I had to do was walk into a meeting and deliver a five-minute report. That's all I had to do. I could have just read the stupid thing. It was that easy. But I could not do it, in no small part because sobbing and heaving in the car on my way there. <laughs> Unchecked, runaway, unstoppable, <laughs> upheaval. All the stuff that I had ignored for all the time that I had ignored it would not be ignored anymore. I couldn't even call my boss to tell him I wouldn't be there. I just had to text could not walk in, and not only that, I had to get out of town. It was the embodiment of that word, crisis. And it happened at midlife, undealt with stuff that now says, long enough, deal now, crisis. So right away, she said, made an appointment with a counselor, and right away the counselor named my experience and began to help me by helping, helping me stand outside of the experience by naming it and being able to realize that it is a thing, but it is not the embodiment of me. And because I could see it and because I could name it, I could stand outside of it, and I can't tell you, Doug, what it feels like to be in the darkness. Now, I am still in the darkness, but to have a candle in the darkness with me. Because now what I have is I have hope. 
this constantly present driving thing, this constant pushing thing, this constant internal pressure, this constant internal judgment, this constant internal belief about me, by me, huh, it is not me. It's a thing, it's a pretty powerful thing, pretty persistent thing, and I do this thing, yes, but it is not me. I do it deeply ingrained for little girl reasons, yeah, I understand that, but when I stand outside of it, I realize it is not me. And if it is not me, maybe I don't have to slave away under it tomorrow. Maybe I don't have to slave away under it for the rest of my life. It's just a little candle. But after 40 years in the dark alone with no light and no perspective and no hope and no joy, a candle is huge. Breakthrough kind of huge. Epiphany kind of huge. Different life kind of huge. The point of pain is not to get out of pain. The point of pain is to get out of pain what we need to get out of pain. Now we do not naturally intuit that that is a truth. We do not naturally tend to focus on the growth that happens for us and in us while we are in pain. We don't tend to focus on the breakthroughs that are available to us in our times of difficulty and in our times of darkness. We don't have good feelings about low-grade anxiety or difficult times or fall apart and sob and heave difficult times. We don't think it's a good thing when we can't walk into a meeting and read a five-minute report when we have to just get out of town. We don't tend to think that weeping and gnashing of teeth is a good thing because nobody ever tells us that that's what growth often looks like. That's what growth often looks like. What we tend to think is that the point of pain is to get the pain to stop. But if we will listen deeply during our midlife crises or during our national mental health crises, during our driven to meet unreasonable expectation crises or driven by our low-grade anxiety yet again today anxiety or our falling apart in the car difficult times. Growth happens in those difficult times if we are paying attention because that's the kind of forcefulness that it takes to rearrange our deeply habituated inner worlds the narratives that we absorbed as little boys and as little girls, the narratives that we picked up along the way that tell us who we are and the way the world is that are true, but not true enough. And that happens in the dark times. That happens in the painful times. And the sooner we get on board with moving toward our pain, the sooner we step into the process by which it can become a tool of growth and transformation in our lives. When things are bad, the spiritual tradition has a plan. Use that pain to trigger us into watchfulness. Use that pain to trigger us into closely paying attention because when things are at their worst, that is what growth looks like. 
when things are at, at their worst, that's what it looks like when something old is dying off and something new and illuminating is being born. That's what growth looks like. And so in Dwelling Divine, may we be alert to our times of malaise, our times of withdrawal, our times of disengagement, our times of irritability, listening for the interior voice that is always there to point us in the direction of better narratives, inner light narratives, the source that is with deep within every one of us. Amen. Well, if you would, please prepare your offerings. And as you're doing that, remember what I say each time, that uh, it's always good investment, spiritual community, because when we invest our time and our energy and our love and our dollars, the community takes those, amplifies them, and gives them back to us in the form of a context, an environment in which we thrive and in which we flourish. We all donate uh, on our online now. It's the donate button at the top of the website. And if you go there, there's lots of ways that you can do that. Now, in a moment, we're going to dismiss you all on the live stream, and we're going to work on the questions here uh, in the room. And today is the last day of our pilot project. We're learning to do on Zoom what we do here in person. You can get the Zoom link on our website. And uh, if you would, let us all put our hands on our heart and remember, as we go, as you go, that we are, every one of us, carriers of the indwelling divine. Love and joy and peace and patience and kindness are within us because the divine is within us courage and wisdom and insight what we need is in us and if you would extend your other hand to our city let's look for opportunities to share what's already there already in us with the people that we live and work and go to school with looking for opportunities to repair our world to heal our world amen god bless you all we uh, you are dismissed you are not dismissed we'd love to connect with you in real life commonthreadchurch.org slash newcomer and if you'd like to take an ownership stake in the well-being of the community, we all contribute online. You'll find a donate button at the top of our website. See you next time. We'd love to connect with you in real life. CommonThreadChurch.org slash newcomer. And if you